Hello. I'm sitting here with two frosty glasses of beer, my awesome wife, and that must mean it's time for another episode of Blood, Fear, and Beer. Welcome to the podcast. My name's Greg. And I'm Alicia. So, Alicia, I see you sitting there with another glass of beer that is darker than the president's soul. (laughs) And I can't see the light of day through it. What are you drinking? I'm drinking yet another stout. So I'm drinking what I thought was a new one, but you had said you thought you remembered me trying this one before on one of our outings. I think you said it was at Yard House or something? Yeah, I think it was at Yard House many, many moons ago. Yeah, I probably did, but I tried so many stouts, it's hard to keep track. But this one is from the Great Divide Brewing Company, and it is a Yeti Imperial Stout. And this one is sitting at a hefty 9.5%. Baller. And it's really tall. This is a pint. little over a pint, yeah, yeah. about a pint and three ounces, so I'm going to be nursing this one for a while. Nice. How about you? What are you drinking there? I am also drinking a brand new beer, which I have not tasted yet, that is brought to you once again by my favorite brewing company, Stone, and it is, once again, an IPA. <laughs> However, it is a new one. It's called Soaring Dragon. It's got some... Chinese characters on it. It's an imperial ale. It's weighing in at 8%, so I'm not too far behind you. So it's got some bang, and it's supposed to be infused with white tea. That sounds good. Inspired by some trip to somewhere. (laughs) All right, well, cheers. Cheers to another podcast. Well, mine, even for a stout, really packs a punch. Yeah? It is strong, and it tastes like cold brew coffee. Nice. It's awesome. I think you would like this one. I hardly ever taste the chocolate when I drink a stout, but I really don't taste chocolate. It tastes like cold brew coffee. You know, when I was pouring it, it like reminded me of coffee. It's Mm. super good. It's really strong. Mine tastes kind of like white tea. I mean, they weren't lying. I think think it's in there. Um, It's very light. It's a crisp beer. It's got, you know, that nice golden hue a little bit darker for a uh, IPA that I've grown accustomed to but it's very you know floral and kind of rests lightly on the tongue nice would you drink it again or yeah absolutely especially for eight percent nice would you like to try my stout I would would you like to try my IPA yes yours is good I actually like that do you really I actually like that and I don't like IPAs almost ever yeah you said it was an eight percent so I was like okay there's no way I'm gonna like it but it's not bitter at all, really. That is super good. Yeah, I it's think nice, I right? like. I wonder if it has that one hop in it that I actually like, the laurel. Oh, laurel. Hop. Yeah, maybe. I honestly can't tell the difference between hops. I'm not that well versed in it, but there was that one that Stone put out, the laurel hop, that was absolutely amazing, and I it kind of reminds me of that, and it smells amazing. Yeah, yours is good too. I don't really taste the chocolate in it. Just coffee. Right? Yeah, I mean, like maybe a little bit on the back burner, mm-hmm. but for the most part, it does just taste like dark coffee yeah and it's delicious i would love that on a porch of a cabin somewhere deep in the dark woods in the winter in the winter but it's 75 degrees in our living room right now right (laughs) and it's sunny until like eight o'clock at night so we're on our what is this our fifth week of quarantine now yeah fifth week oh my god okay well (laughs) yeah it all seems the same it's all going together (laughs) Doesn't stop. <laughs> Every time still I go going. out, I'm still absolutely flabbergasted by how many fucking people are out. And uh, where I think it's just like nothing else is going on outside. Everyone's just fucking lined up at Home Depot and 
wherever the fuck else they got going on. I don't even know. Yeah, it's been an ordeal just trying to go grocery shopping the last couple times. It's been scary. You know what's been driving me nuts is I've been running the trail by our apartment. Mm -hmm. It's like a multi-use horse trail that goes uh, all the way up into like a, a local regional park, kind of like a foot traffic only area. Yeah. And, um, you know, I expect people to be out and trying to get some exercise and some fresh air and everything. So, you know, there's going to be some people on the trail. And it's not like it's packed-packed, but I feel like over the last week or two, the people that are on the trail are, one, there's more, and then two, they're just being really irresponsible and inconsiderate. And you'll have groups of them and, you know, anywhere from like 4 to 15 that are just like walking down in this huge herd of people all the way across all the way across (laughs) they always have to walk two to four to abreast and they can't just step to one fucking side when you're trying to get by no matter what the hell's going on and instead they just like you know you're trying to get through and they just kind of randomly go any old direction like they're just fucking cockroaches that just saw a light (laughs) or something like that and i feel like i'm moses parting the sea of disease and i'm trying to like like run through this group of people that's sneezing and coughing as fast as possible it's kind of been making me angry yeah i have definitely noticed that more over the last week especially and i don't know if it's just because the weather is getting nicer or because people are getting antsy or there's a lot of mixed information coming out it's like definitely your mail yeah, don't microwave your meal. You yeah, guys no. don't do it. Totally fucking works. Don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> I've definitely noticed that too, and it's especially at the grocery store. It's been super scary going out and just having to literally like physically dodge people left and right. But you know, other than that, just being at home has honestly been so nice and so comforting, and I'm really enjoying my time at home. Yeah, as far as all that goes, I mean, I've like I said before, I've been working from home and kind of get my groove down. I'm still having a hard time taking the breaks that I should because I'm like here and I'm trying to get work done and I want to think I'm like slacking and I also have shit that I need to get done and then I get distracted with it and then I keep on putting it off and the next thing I know it's It's like five o'clock it's five o'clock and I haven't taken a lunch or any breaks and I'm like shit okay and you're normally off at four so yeah yeah and uh so I'm still trying to get that balance down but when I am doing that it's been nice being able to you know do something on my lunch that Maybe I want to be able to do before, like, you know, doing some yoga or going for a run or, you know, getting a little exercise in here and there or whatever it may be. Yeah. And having the time to, like, just strip down to the living room and have my workout clothes on in three seconds and get a workout in and hop in and take a shower in five minutes and hop back at it because I don't need to look presentable. I know. It's been super nice. <laughs> yeah. So that part's been pretty awesome. Just saving a lot of time when you would normally be... You know, either spending that time driving or getting dressed or there's there's definitely been some extra time. The driving in particular, even though I don't have a long commute anymore like I yeah. used to, you know, it still kind of adds up and a lot of traffic lights and stop and go and everything. And I can't, just taking a trip down to like the store or something like that now seems so terribly inconvenient and mm-hmm. such a waste of time. It's daunting. <laughs> and, it's just, and it's a waste of time. I'm like, yeah. fuck, this is stupid. <laughs> You know, why don't I just stop, go, stop, go, stop, go. Well, remember last Monday when I did, like, I try to do our grocery shopping once a week and I'll, I'll hit all the places where we need all of our supplies. Like, I'll hit Target for the cleaning supplies and anything we need from Target. And then I'll do Ralph's, that's where we get our groceries. And then by the time I get back, it's like half the day is gone. Last time you went out, I was actually getting worried about you, like something happened, because you were gone all day long. That was when I had to drive like to Huntington Beach. Huntington Beach is insane right now. So we had a... Our experience here with some 
social commentary. And as we've discussed before, um, one of the reasons why I love horror so much is that it can be such an amazing tool and medium for social commentary. So you had this idea kind of as we were watching this movie, American Psycho, and we were both kind of relieved when we watched it because it had been years since we'd seen it. And, you know, I remembered it being like a really good satire the last time I watched it. And I wasn't 100% sure if it was going to hold up that way again. So when we did watch it, I was really pleasantly surprised that not only did I get more from it this time, but it's still, the message it was trying to convey is still so relevant today and it's still so accessible as a viewer. Absolutely. So you had the fun idea and it kind of sparked us to think about, you know, other horror movies that we've watched that either upon rewatching, we discovered that it's actually a great social commentary or watching for the first time we got kind of an unexpected message out of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, watching this movie, again, like you were saying, I was a little bit hesitant. I remembered it being super good, and I remembered it being funny, and I remembered it being dark as all hell. And then I was thinking about it, because it's been quite some time since I've seen it, and I was like, man, is it is it going to hold up, or is it really just kind of going to be super dated, and it's going to be a lot of like motifs that are just insulting now, and way off the mark you know and we were we were both very pleasantly surprised by that and it got me thinking of a movies that I saw for the first time that I didn't know what I was getting into or maybe wasn't necessarily pitched as a social commentary-esque movie or having that type of value or having that type of theme or the alternative was movies that I had seen before and either I got more out of it the second, third time watching or, you know, came into a new light of seeing something more out of it than I initially had gotten the first time. Yeah. I love it when that happens. It's always like it enriches the experience of that movie when I watch it again and I I take more from it each time I watch it. And I feel like that's just kind of the essence of, you know, what makes art actual art and it's that it is interpreted by the person and as we change as people... I find it refreshing that watching the same thing that I watched eight years ago, I see a new light now, because that tells me, A, that it was good art, if you'll say, you know, whatever that means. But also, you know, because I am getting something new out of it, it's not just the same old recycled shit. But the other thing is that it makes me feel kind of good that I have changed in the last eight years, and so I'm, you know, evolving and hopefully for the better. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so, you know, since I was my idea, why don't you go ahead and start? (laughs) (laughs) What were some of your thoughts? So I wrote down quite a few, and it's not really in any particular order like we did with the last one where we ranked our favorite creatures, but I just divided it into two categories, and then the first one was uh, movies that I got new insight out of after rewatching them, and then the second category was movies that I was surprised the first time I watched them. I'll go over a couple of the ones that I rewatched and got more out of, and the first one that popped into my head was Alien. We had made a couple comments on it last time we watched it, but I don't want to go into too much detail for anybody who hasn't seen it. But the last couple times I watched Alien, I definitely saw what I could interpret as some commentary on not only the treatment of women and the objectification of women, but also the objectification of human beings by corporations mm, and by sure, companies. Yeah. yeah, like that one was just, I was like hit over the head with that one in particular. I don't need to worry about a spoiler. It. It's been like 40 years. I just, I think it's okay. <laughs> there are people who haven't seen Alien, and I just, I would never forgive myself for taking that experience away from them. Well, we're going I can't to. Do it eventually. <laughs> eventually, but they'll have advance warning. Well, 
here's your warning. Go watch Alien. <laughs> um, and then the next one I wrote down was Poltergeist, which, hear me out. I know you're looking at me weird. Hear me out. That is, as you know, one of my all-time favorite horror movies. Mm-hmm. And I watch it at the very least once a year. And one of the reasons I've always loved it so much is because it's just a classic roller coaster ride, fun horror movie slash ghost story. And the very last time you and I watched it, it was like maybe four or five months ago. I felt like the writer and director were kind of making a comment on just the isolation and lack of support that people living in these like cookie cutter suburban neighborhoods might encounter okay that's what i got from it last time like you know you have this family again no spoilers but if you haven't seen that movie where have you been um (laughs) but you have this family who at the beginning of the movie like they're hanging out with their neighbors and they're hanging out with friends and then later on they're literally going through hell in their own house and you know doors are slamming and objects are flying and they're screaming for help and you never see their friends again you never see them calling anybody you never see anyone coming over to check on them they're completely isolated and alone despite the fact that they live so close together that their remotes interfere with each other's tvs yeah so that kind of surprised me the last time i watched it yeah that's a good point the next one i wrote down i had to throw the fly in there because you know after revisiting that one last week just i mean take your pick there's all kinds of sure. <laughs> social commentary in that one and the last one i wrote down for movies that i had already seen was the shining you know that's obviously one of our favorite horror movies of all time and i feel like every single time i watch that movie i get something new out of it but especially after watching the the documentary which i'm sure a lot of people have heard about the one that really struck me was the native americans yeah, there's a so that like documentary is called uh, Room 237. Yeah. By the way, and it used to be on Netflix. I think it might be on Hulu now. Okay. If you haven't seen it, it's really interesting. Like, they're the thing that's pretty cool about it is that a lot of them make sense and they're all completely different. Yeah. And I won't go too far down that rabbit hole, you know. But Stanley Kubrick is one of those guys that he's one you could see him doing one or multiple of these things just for the sake of doing it you know just to like flex his brain muscles and fuck around with the film and you know with people and see what they pick up on and so like every single one of these could all be valid he could be going you know for that message on every single one of them or it could all be bullshit yeah which is great yeah Yeah, that's what makes it super fun yeah like some of those theories from that documentary are really out there and some of them i was like okay come on that's reaching a little bit but i think it was the first one they talk about where you know, they say, oh, The Shining is actually about the history of Native Americans or how, um, like, the his- the violent history of America. And mm-hmm. that one, after rewatching the movie, after watching that documentary, that one was the strongest, in my opinion. Same. But even without that documentary, you know, every time you watch it, sometimes you watch it through the lens of alcoholism or sometimes you watch it through the lens of domestic violence. And it's, it's truly a different experience every single time I watch it. Yeah, depending on, it's especially amazing. if you're wanting to, like, look at through the the lens of Danny or which character like you can try to focus on each one of them and get something completely different out of it it's there are infinite possibilities it's like one of the best movies yeah it's undoubtedly my favorite movie of all time I think yeah especially I mean especially if I say horror like it's just yeah I'm not gonna we won't go down that road (laughs) we'll do a three-hour episode (laughs) on that one eventually So that's that's my um, list of movies that I've seen before that I was kind of surprised by. How about a couple of years? What do you have on your list? So even though this was my idea, and at the time I felt like I had quite a few thoughts, and I should have written them down, and then this week has been unbearably busy and balls to the walls, and I haven't had time to really think about it. That's okay. So that being said, my list is short, 
and it's probably not at all what I would normally go for on a regular basis. So I threw in the fly too because I had just seen that for the first time and I was really impressed with it. And if you want to hear the commentary on that, listen to last week's episode. A couple others. I had the Shining on there for sure. Um, I I threw in, it, I kind of looked them together, but I guess I will take them separate. So Alien for sure. But I also threw in Prometheus. Oh, nice. Okay. One, I love the shit out of that movie. I know a lot of people don't. And I'm going to convince you when it comes time to review this. What makes that movie so damn great? Yeah, get ready to love that movie if you don't. But one of the, my all-time favorite themes that is explored in sci-fi, and I think it's really what got me into sci-fi in the first place when I really think about it, if I think about themes, is I, I love playing with the idea of artificial intelligence and the way that people treat the thing that they have created and the image of themselves. Yes. And then the way that that AI can ultimately become more powerful than the thing that created it. But it's still, usually in most sci-fi, it is still considered a lower life form because they know how it works, essentially, because they made it. And there's just a lot of tantalizing, delicious interactions between AI and humans in that movie and themes explored with that, especially when it's considered with this alien life form that may or may not have created humans. And so it's just this like layer of exploring who we are and what it means to exist and what our purpose is. And it's, I love it. Oh, it's so amazing. That's such a good pick. And then there's like that, that message that I see in so many sci-fi movies of the, like just questioning the ethics of genetic engineering and of that kind of work and the thought of like just because you can doesn't necessarily mean you should but we do but we do and then the last one because i heard you talking about it earlier today as well and it really blew me away the first time i saw it was mother and i also know how much people hate that movie or a lot of people hate it i thought it was just phenomenal and in particular i thought it was a film for writers i know film for readers for sure you know people who like literature people who like that type of writing those type of themes that go and explore things in a way that is low and methodical and poetic and dark and leaves you just feeling like you've read something you've read before but also something you never knew yeah that's such a good way to put it. I really loved that movie. Like, I I hadn't really seen any uh, any previews for it, or what I had seen was very limited. And you and I watched that for the first time. I had no idea what to expect. I didn't know what we were getting into, and I certainly was not expecting what we got. Same. So what else you got? I also had Mother, just to get that out of the way, because, uh, yeah, that one just blew me away the first time I watched it. I, I really didn't know what to expect, like I said. And another one I had that I was really surprised the first time I watched it was... And you're going to get so sick of me talking about this movie because I'm so obsessed with it. But Cabin in the Woods. (laughs) (laughs) That one was just such a treat as a horror fan. Like, that was a movie, like, lovingly crafted by horror fans for horror fans. And it somehow also manages to be a biting critique on the entire genre itself and, like, just overused horror tropes. Hmm. And I thought that was presented in such a fun and fresh and unique way. And I just love that movie. I gotta watch it again. You really need to. It's so much better if you watch it 
with that in mind, like this was created by horror fans for horror fans and with the intention of critiquing the genre and showing all these tired tropes and then like ending with the suggestion of a total overhaul of the genre. Okay. Like that's, I'll, I'll look through it. I'll watch it so again great. for that one. <laughs> it's so great. And uh, I also put, because um, I actually saw this movie really late and I had seen the remake before I saw the original, uh, but you and I for the first time, or it was my first time a few years ago, uh, watched the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, mm. the original one, and it was just right in your face the whole time. This movie is about the meat industry. Like, there was no doubt in my mind. And, you know, I looked it up just to see what other people had to say about it, and the director was like, no, it's definitely about the meat industry. That's, you know, I'm hitting you over the head with Obviously. Milk. Obviously. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, yeah, when I was watching that movie, I was like, wow, this this makes me think of, like, what it might look like if we treated human beings the way we treat animals. So that one was kind of a surprise especially for a slasher interesting okay yeah yeah that's a that's a good thought yeah so that one um that one definitely surprised me yeah well uh well picked thank you so that was my list um so this week was your pick and just in time for the 20th anniversary of which the was... release of this movie which we didn't even know about which is awesome yeah. <laughs> you chose 2000s american psycho directed by mary heron yeah i remember the first time I watched this movie, and I loved it. I was just, you don't look at me the wrong way. I know you won't, but I was just thrilled. <laughs> like, I just yeah. found it like some of the kill scenes in this are oh, unbelievably hilarious. Yeah. And just, it was something else. It's right up your alley. It totally is. Sure. And you know how I love just like that cynicism and, you yeah. know, dark satire and things like that. So this movie, just to give it a, a quick synopsis right off the bat for those of you who have not seen it. From the director, and this was first off a book to begin with. I don't know the author's name. Do you? I don't. I'm sorry. I know. We'll have to. We'll get it for you later. Yeah. So it was originally a book, which I haven't read yet, but I'm definitely going to now. Um, I've been thinking about it. I think I might try the audio book if I can get it. So it was a book, and they made a movie about it that is supposed to be a biting critique of the extravagance of the 80s, essentially. And that whole time period of people that were rather undeserving, having far too much wealth, just this basically a decade of greed and decadence and emptiness. And so the movie follows a character by the name of uh, Patrick Bateman, who's a a young 27-year-old Christian Bale. And it's basically the movie, the whole thing is about his whole lifestyle as working in this environment on the on the high end of it of like a CEO or a vice president yeah on Wall Street right on Wall Street and his absolute emptiness and absolute lack of belonging or sense of self and how he's simply his mask begins to slip to the point where he just kind of snaps and he starts killing Everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Literally everybody. <laughs> In hilarious ways. And it spirals out of control. And it gets to the point where you he doesn't know if what's happening is real or not anymore. And by the end of the movie, you don't know yeah. if it's real or not. And at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. Yeah. I think the la- the last line in the movie is this confession has meant nothing. Yes. Which is like 
oof, there's there's just so much to talk about with this movie. There's so much to dive into. And I noticed while we were watching it, we were both just like furiously scribbling notes the entire time. And I feel like usually, you know, I'll start taking a lot of notes at the beginning and then I'll kind of trail off and come back to it later. But we were both like furiously scribbling the entire time. They had so many good one-liners. Oh, so many good quotes. Just just scenes, like really great scenes where yeah. I wanted to... Un- I feel like you could write several dissertations about this movie if you oh, really sure. wanted to unpack it yeah. and about this book. There's just... For a movie that's just like some good old-fashioned kill scenes yeah. that are fun as fuck, there's a lot going on here if you want to pick up on it. Not yeah. that it's that hard to pick up on or anything. I mean, that's the whole point, but... I did a lot of outside research on this movie just because I know that there there has to be a ton of literature written about this, not just because it's based on a really controversial book, but because the movie itself has so much to offer. And I actually printed out one of the articles I came across that was written a couple days ago. Oh, nice. And I just, I highlighted a couple things that I thought would really kind of like support the themes that we might be talking about or some of the things that we might have picked up from this movie. Uh, But the article is called, it's from The Guardian, and it's called American Psycho at 20, A Vicious Satire That Remains as Sharp as Ever by Scott Tobias. And like I said, this was published just a couple days ago. I'll come back to the rest later, but the first thing that I highlighted was uh, they asked the question. There was a documentary that came out uh, three years after the book was written, and actually it has the author's name right here. It's Brett Easton Ellis. Thank you. So that clears that up. Uh, But three years after... The book American Psycho came out. A documentary called The Corporation came out, which I haven't oh, seen. Oh, I have seen that. Have that you? Good. Okay. Yeah. I haven't seen it. I gotta check it out. But the documentary caused a lot of uproar and a lot of conversation, basically because it dares to ask the question if a corporation were a person, what type of person would yeah, it be? Yeah, it was pretty fun. Yeah, and like the the author of this article kind of says the same thing about American Psycho. Like, if this era in time were a person, this person would be Patrick Bateman. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I thought that was really. Um, insightful and that that's kind of the lens that i watched this movie through and i got a lot from that awesome yeah i might have to read that later yeah it's it's really good it's short it's really well written but it, it brings up some great points that i'll kind of reference back to as they come out yeah i'm just so stoked that this uh happened to coincidentally coincide with the 20th anniversary and here we are in like three days afterwards and there's people writing articles about it and that they also are getting as much out of it as ever, as we 20 are. Years later, 20 yeah, years later, yeah. It's, it's pretty awesome. I was I was happy to see that. I love it when life does weird things like Me that. Me too. <laughs> so, you know, as you were talking about, like, uh, this movie has some really good quotes, but one of the first things I actually wrote down, just that I thought was really funny, was it, it kind of gives you a an instant window into just the absurdity of the consumerist culture that these people live in. And basically the first 10 to 15 minutes of the movie... We have Patrick Bateman sitting at a restaurant uh, ordering the most ridiculous things off the menu. And then he goes through his entire morning routine and he tells you every single product that he uses and every single thing that he does to take care of his body. And it's all very like surface level stuff. But I wrote down as many of the dishes that I could as they were saying them. Mm -hmm. Because they're so funny. <laughs> yeah, there's some great uh, dishes yeah, dish on them. Did you write any of them down? I only got a couple down. What'd you get? I got a uh, squid ravioli. And oh, I got that one. Swordfish meatloaf. Yeah. And then they were just like, what else? I remember. Yeah, the, I got a the bunch. squid ravioli, and it was a uh, it was squid ravioli and lemongrass broth. Yeah. And then there was the swordfish meatloaf, and then at one point he also suggested that somebody order the charcoal arugula. 
I have no idea what that is. I was going to say what it is. It might be a thing. I don't know. Okay. And then there was a pork loin with lime jello. <laughs> Just like gross shit that nobody would eat. Yeah, there's all kinds of <laughs> random ass shit. And then when they get their meals, you know, it's like the classic fancy restaurant thing where it's like these like teeny tiny bites. small portions. Yeah. Nobody finishes what's on their plate. And then there's actually a scene. I think there's like four or five guys that are out having th- this lunch, yeah, like, which oh, happens only... all the time. <laughs> yeah. And they're like, speaking of a good deal, it was uh, only 570 for four. <laughs> and then they all slam down their yeah. you know, platinum credit cards and <laughs> piece out of there. But <laughs> it's actually, that made me laugh really hard because when we were looking for wedding caterers, that was actually something that I laughed at constantly. Like some of the really expensive caterers, like the dishes that they would list were just ridiculous things that I would never imagine We just want fucking tacos, man. Yeah, we just wanted tacos, taco truck. But yeah, that cracked me up. That's like, and that's at the very beginning. They they hit you with that. Like they're in the. I think that's the beginning scene when they're like, oh, it's only five hundred and seventy dollars, and they slap down their credit cards and. And then uh, you were talking about you know Patrick Bateman going through his whole morning routine, which is just absolutely absurd, and um, it kind of reminded me of like those those blog posts of um, you know like these. I, I remember there was one that you mentioned about like Amanda Palmer posted like a fake one kind of critiquing oh, about her some, workout like, routine yeah, yeah about like some of these like you know not the this is a little bit you know just poking fun I'm not trying to get too hard on anybody here but like some of the like yoga mom-esque things where yeah. you know it's like well I go out and do this for you know blah 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 many hours yeah. and I have my wheatgrass smoothie and my uh sea salt enema and then, and I, then I levitate for 13 minutes <laughs> and like Patrick Bateman's thing is like that where he just spends literally like his morning routine is like a four-hour routine of just probably over an hour and a half in the shower applying different, you know, types of soaps and moisturizers and creams and stuff like that. And yeah. then he talks about his exercise routine where he's up to a thousand sit-ups every day now and, like, doing all this other stuff. And yeah. it's just absolutely, you know, like you said, absurd. And then another thing that you pick up on in his his first morning routine is just the emptiness of the space that they inhabit so when you walk into his apartment everything is pretty much completely white there's no color to anything i actually noticed that on the and i I actually think it changed because i wrote down a note here and then i saw it later and it was different so i think it actually changed later on in the movie which is uh, interesting yeah but he has a number of picture frames that are like up in the, the hallway when you first walk in okay and there's nothing in them Oh, they're white. Interesting. But then later in the movie, they're black. So when you initially... Oh, walk, shit. Yeah. I didn't even notice yeah, that. Yeah. I, wow. I remember seeing at the end of the movie and they were all black. Um, but so they're all just blank frames. He does have a couple posters or pictures, if you will, but it's all black and white art. And his clothes, like his exercise clothes, they're all white. His underwear is all white. Like everything yeah. is white, 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 white. Yeah. And there's almost like no contrast to anything. And there's definitely no shades of gray yeah which this movie has zero shades of gray yeah that's something i noticed too like the only other color in his apartment is black like the shower is black a couple of the pictures on the wall are black and everything is black and white i actually made a mental note of that too like there there are no gray areas no everything is like one way or another and it's either and when you think about it it's either the absolute absence of color or the absolute absence of anything Mm -hmm. or just complete mud yeah like chaos because, you know, yeah. it's everything mixed together. Yeah, it was really interesting. And in I didn't notice the picture frames for sure, but there are a lot of things in this movie that kind of change throughout. And the biggest one, of course, is everyone's name. 
<laughs> and <laughs> and that is, you know, you'll probably hear us saying different names and, and might be wondering who is this person, who is that person. And ultimately, I, I don't know if it matters by the end of the movie, the way everything plays out, because nobody seems to know who anybody is. And they're all calling each other by the wrong name and mistaking each other for other people. And, you know, all we know at first is like there's Patrick Bateman, Christian Bale's character. Yeah, and I think if you really wanted to, we can go back and there's a, a really great scene which we'll dive into a little bit more of when they're having them showing their business cards. Oh yeah, I wrote so that we down. We could probably get their names off of that to yeah. make sure that's what their actual <laughs> name was. But that is like a constant reiterating theme that goes on in this movie. Like you said, it's just every single person calls each other by a different name almost constantly. Like the wrong name. And then nobody acknowledges it. They just go yeah. with it. You know, and yeah. it's this idea like, well, I can't tell yeah. them I'm not that person, you know? Like, that would be superficial. Yeah. Or, like, you know, I don't want them to think whatever. And it's also the idea that, like, nobody actually cares about you. Yeah. Like, you're the, and they act like you're their best friend. Like, you've, oh, it's been great to see you, yeah, Michael. Yeah, let's do lunch. Yeah. yeah. And They're always blah, doing blah, lunch. Well, how's your wife, blah, blah, blah. And, like, it's this whole idea that, you know, you're cool and in with everybody, but you also don't know anything about anybody. They eat so much lunch in this movie. They do. And then <laughs> they're con like, that's all they do is like reservations for lunch and for dinner. And there's even that scene where they're all like freaking, they're at lunch, which they have reservation for, of course. Yeah. Um, and they're all freaking out about where to go next and yeah. they will not leave unless they know they have reservations made for later in the evening because yeah. their life has absolutely no meaning if it's not already like set in stone and it is a hard to get to place. Yeah. And you know, they have something that they can put on their calendar. One of the guys even said, like, toward the end of the movie, when they were at yet another lunch, and there was, like, a Reagan on the TV giving a speech, and he was like, I'm not even hungry right now. I just like to have a reservation. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I like to know if I'm going somewhere, I have a reservation. But I love that business card scene that you mentioned. It was so funny. I actually wrote it down as the business card dick measuring contest. Because, the, like, they're all just... For, I, I don't even remember what prompted it. They all just decide to whip out their new business cards. And as they pull it out, there's like this sound of like, almost like a sword being yeah, unsheathed. Like, Whoosh. Every single <laughs> and one. And they slap it down yeah. the table. And I, I noticed that like more than one of their cards said vice president on it. Yeah. I think company. almost all of them did. I went back and made sure. And every single one of their business cards says vice president yeah. on it. So it's like nobody knows what anybody does. And... Everyone's getting each other confused for somebody else. And I don't remember seeing any single person doing any work in that movie. None like, we whatsoever. don't know what they actually do. Nobody has done any work in the entire movie. Well, we know that they're into murders and executions. Yes. <laughs> but the, the, and then they're all almost like identical cards. But, you know, it's that whole idea of, like... <laughs> The off-white and the egg-white and the bone and the, all these, like, yeah. just completely just minuscule shades of difference. And, like, the charcoal black coloring and this yeah. and that. But the best part was uh, when Patrick, you know, everyone's, like, laid out their cards. And there's this one character that's the only one there that's not cool, essentially. And he's, like, this goofy dude. He's got, like, a big nose and a bad haircut and, you know, socially awkward and everything. And he pulls out his. He's like, oh, you know, I'm late to the party, guy. Let me whip out my dick. <laughs> and uh, everyone's like, oh, this guy, you know. And then he pulls it out and Patrick looks at it and he just starts quivering and shaking <laughs> and, like, sweating. He's like, my God. It's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen in my life. He's like, oh, my God, it even has a watermark. That's what it was. <laughs> <laughs> he's just like 
relishing <laughs> yes. in these mundane mm-hmm. material things and like then there's the you know the ever coveted reservation for Dorcia yeah. that nobody can get and we'll, except for we'll the get one to dude. The, except for Paul Allen except for Paul who Allen he viciously murders <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it's my favorite oh one. my god that's the best scene in the movie <laughs> it's so good <laughs> so as we're going through this whole thing you you first have to get the idea that you know what's going on here and what kind of people these are and at the beginning, you even get a sense of not just their lifestyle and everything, but Patrick Bateman is talking to you. It's like he, you find out at the end, it's his confession. So you are watching this as a third person, but then you're also getting first person narrative. So there's scenes where he, you know, things are going on, but he's also then giving you a first person account of what he's feeling or what he's thinking. And it's in these that we start to glean that Patrick Baton, I mean, not just Arctic Lean, we know it from watching it, but we get a really in-depth critique of what is actually going on and how empty and hollow he feels and how meaningless all of this is to him. And so you're, it's building the cast, the crew, the environment, the scenes, the, the spectacle, the ridiculousness, the absurdity of this entire environment. And then and it is also at the same time giving you, on the other hand, Patrick's firsthand account of where he's coming from and what he is actually thinking and feeling and what is going on through his brain and how he's like basically losing his grip on trying to fit in. Yeah. And I think that might be a good point where we just, like, can jump into when he flips the switch. The scene with Paul Allen? Yeah, so, you actually, the first, I started trying to keep count, and then at one point, there's so many bodies that it's impossible to keep count of what, how many people he actually killed. And even at the end, he says he doesn't know. So, the first time that you actually see him do anything crazy... There's a scene where you get the idea because he's got he's going to the dry cleaners and there's what looks like a whole pool of blood all over his sheets and oh, yeah, he's trying right. to get it cleaned. But there you can be like, I don't know what's going on. Maybe it's wine. Who knows? But they definitely, you know, kind of give that to you. And then not too long after that, it was after going out to dinner and everything. I have to mention one other thing about the characters. Everybody's banging each other's significant other. Oh, yeah, and, the they're, and they're all getting the names interchanged. All of the names are yeah. wrong, and also, you know, even though they're all supposed to be friends, like, literally everybody is banging the other person's significant other. Yeah. And it's also just, you know, exploring the idea that they're, the idea of monogamy, the idea of trust, the idea of friendship yeah. is completely bullshit and yeah. also hollow. Yeah. And that even the sex, both both the... You know, the partner and the affair E, I don't know what you want to call them. <laughs> it's all empty. Like, nobody is doing it for pleasure, yeah. essentially. it's they're, they're doing it because you're supposed to have affairs. And because, yeah. So I just had to throw that in there, too. That's yeah. another thing. Getting back to the first kill is after dinner, everything is normal. And then he just walks down this, an alleyway and there's a homeless person there. And he starts, like, kind of offering them help in a, in a douchey way. Yeah. Like... Saying, hey, you know, like, you need some money, you need some food, like, but then he's like, why the fuck, why don't you get a job? What the fuck's wrong with you? You know, what are you doing this for? And I think that's the first time you really get that idea of this completely, I want to say entitled, but is that the right word? Yeah, so this this entitled person who has this position because his dad owns the company or something like that. Yeah. um, And has had everything given to him is just born into a life of extravagance and absolute greed 
and emptiness comes across the only person, I think, in the entire movie that you encounter that is not well off. Yeah. It's this homeless person on the side of the street. And not knowing anything about the guy demeans him, insults him, basically tells him, like, what the fuck, you're meaningless, your life means nothing, you're a waste, like, why haven't you done anything with your life? And then proceeds to stab him to death. Yeah, and stomp his dog. And then he stomps his dog to death. And that's, like, that's Patrick Bateman. That was the first moment in the movie where I stopped laughing. Yeah, well, I hope so. Yeah, well, that was, well, like, you know, like you said, some of the kills are really funny, but that one was, it was so jarring the way that that was done, and I, I really appreciated it for that, because you get this, like, his mask slips, and you get this glimpse of just complete nothingness, and just pure, like, coldness and cruelty. Yeah, there's no enjoyment out of it, either. No, it's just pure coldness, like, that scares the shit out of me. I also was thinking about the fact that it's, like, literally the moment he turns the corner... And he's out of sight of society at large. Yeah. That he cannot help himself. Yeah. Like, it just slips. So that was the first kill. Yeah. And that one was jarring. It was. Or supposed to be, you know. A especially with the dog. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I'm not saying I'm saying yeah. that. <laughs> um, and then we move on to what is probably the best murder kill scene in that whole fucking movie, arguably. <laughs> and also, just one of the funnest kill scenes. <laughs> just in all time, really. <laughs> And this is of Paul Allen, which is this guy that is, you know that he is jealous of only in like a hierarchical sense. A very superficial sense. way. Yeah, in a superficial way. Like, he got a reservation at Dorsey. Yeah. And he has like some account and he's, you know, doing moderately well and he's, people confuse Paul Allen for Patrick Bateman, which also irritates the shit out of him. But of course, they're supposed to be friends. And then Paul Allen doesn't even know what Patrick's name is. I think he calls him... He calls him, him Marcus Halberstrom. Yeah. <laughs> and um, he brings him... He gets him drunk and brings him back to his apartment. And he... The other thing in this movie is that there is a lot of quote-unquote good 80s music. <laughs> um, <laughs> and Patrick Bateman is super into popular music and yeah. I have some thoughts on that but yeah. for now Paul Allen's drunk off his ass and he's just kind of sitting there and then Patrick Bateman puts on a raincoat <laughs> a clear raincoat puts on Huey Lewis in the News the um, 4 album and plays Hip to be Square at top volume <laughs> And is, while he's doing this, he's also just going into Huey Lewis and the News's whole history and the history of the song and this album and what brings it all together and like getting you know, this whole thing. And then he pulls out the most beautiful, shiny axe. Do you want to go on from here? Yeah. So he's playing this song, Hip to Be Square, and he's commenting on, you know, all the reasons why he loves it and why it's so great. And one of the things he says is, it's about the pleasures of conformity and the importance of trends, which is basically like Patrick Bateman's alias in a nutshell. Like he says to his fiance in the car, like, she's like, why don't you want to quit your job? He's like, I want to fit in. And he uses all these products and, you know, uh, pretends to care about social issues because he wants to fit in. And I feel like this song kind of just adds to that notion a little bit of who this guy is or who he's trying to be. And so he's playing this song for Paul and the scene is so jarring and hilarious because, like, he's obviously about to murder the shit out of this guy and you're kind of scared, like, oh, shit, what's going to happen? But then as he's 
doing this, he's talking in this very wooden, almost pleasant voice, and then he starts dancing. He's, like, moonwalking with the axe and, like, <laughs> shaking his hips and dancing. And then he's... <laughs> I forget exactly what he says, but he's, like, picking up the axe and, like, finishing his little monologue. And then he goes, hey, Paul. Ah! <laughs> and just, like, axe to the face, kills the shit out of this guy. There's blood everywhere. And he just, like, loses his cool completely. And then he says, uh, he's like, try getting a reservation at Dorcia now, you stupid fucking bastard. <laughs> It's so crazy. Oh my god, it's so good. And then again, you have a whole apartment that's nothing but white. Yeah. And so you just have like this blood and the, again, his, his axe that he uses, like it's just brand new, shiny, everything just gorgeous and new and perfect. And then yeah. this just like axed body on the, uh, on the, or on the newspaper yeah. on the carpet. And like newspaper's going to stop a pool yeah, of blood from soaking into your white carpet. Yeah. Like, but, oh my god. <laughs> and it's just such a classic thing. I feel like... Just for a moment, I feel like every person has been there where there's just that person that they don't get along with and they don't see eye to eye with, but they're like in their social group, you know, yeah. or maybe with a classmate or a coworker or something like that. And it's just this like, dude, hey, Paul! <laughs> We've all been there. Just a, maybe not know, to just the, in your mind's eye. Yeah. Just a little bit. Oh, oh my God. God. I feel it's like so the... funny. The kill scenes do like increasingly get more and more disturbing, and and that one, and then you know he moves on to after this point, like what we see on screen, he's just killing women. Yeah, at that point, it it just goes, you know, it's gone beyond it goes real fun, dark. and it's like really dark shit, and you know it, he increasingly can't control himself, and the movie is kind of propagated. The storyline is propagated by the fact that Paul Allen is the only person that he kills that has any quote-unquote societal um, significance, yeah. right? And so there's actually a private investigator that is looking for him, mm. which is played by um, William Defoe, another awesome actor. Yeah. And um, so it's not an actual police investigation yet, and I think that is just another commentary. Like, he's just too cool and too important to actually you know, go to the police for this. Like, you couldn't possibly have anything wrong with him. We don't want to make a big deal out of it. Yeah. But, you know, there's something concerning, so we have the money to hire a private investigator. At the same time, Patrick Bateman is continually degrading in his ability to, you know, keep this facade up. And so he's killing more and more and more. Mm -hmm. And so it's more likely that he's going to get caught. And he's just kind of a spiraling effect. But what's interesting is that, you know, as all of this develops, not once does anybody question anything. No, never. They don't no care. Scene, there's there's re so many ridiculous scenes of, you know, him doing things in public yeah. or where there should be people around or where they could hear things or things could happen. And nobody says anything. The investigator that is looking into him, although he seems astute. You know, never once really seems to actually consider him a suspect. Yeah, he's just kind of going through the motions. Yeah. He's like, maybe this guy did, maybe he didn't. I don't really care. I'm just paid to be here. And yeah. He doesn't really seem to have anything invested in it. Right. And we can get down some of those things later. But after Paul Allen, there's then the date with the blonde woman. Is that when he picks up the, the two sex workers? No. That was... Remember there's the murders and executions? Oh my gosh, I keep forgetting about that. Yeah, the one the one he meets at the... Like, outside of the club? 
It's in the club, yeah. Okay. So there's like a, a there's multiple scenes where they're inside of these clubs, and it's just like these. Again, it's kind of a portrayal of like what's going on in the eighties. Like it's just a mishmash of all types of people. Oh, is that where they said the they were complaining that there's no good bathroom to do coke in? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and everybody that's in the bathroom is there to do coke. Yeah. Like there's a line of like 50 people getting into a bathroom where there's like 20 stalls and in every single of the stalls <laughs> there's, like there's three multiple yeah, there's coke. three people doing coke. And um there's a point where he's like picking up on this uh not even picking up but he's talking to this this woman that's in there this blonde woman and that's the part where it's like loud and nobody can hear each other talking doesn't matter cuz nobody listens anyways. Yeah. But she's like what do you do? And he increasingly says what he wants to say or what he's feeling but Mm -hmm. again whether it's because of the music or whatever nobody listens to him or nobody hears him and he says murders and executions mostly (laughs) she's like oh murders and acquisitions yeah she's like oh yeah i have a friend who does that murders and acquisitions how do you like it (laughs) they hate it and then next thing you know they're off together and they've you know apparently gone off and had sex or whatever and then later in the movie, which I, you want to explain because <laughs> we're watching this, he's like in the house and he has somebody over and he like opens up the freezer to get the somebody ice cream, <laughs> and this woman's head is just in the freezer and Alicia like jumped. Like, ah! I screamed. I was like, I was so shocked to see a head in this freezer. I was like, why am I surprised? But it, it really, really comes it out really of startled me. And they don't give you at this <sighs> point, even though you've seen him murder two people already brutally. Yeah. You know, they, they don't really give you indication that he's going to go murder this woman. This movie kind of, like, makes you feel crazy as it's happening. Because the whole time I was just doubting everything I was seeing. And even when he would say these things to people, like, at one point, I think he it was when he was at lunch with Paul Allen getting him drunk. And he's like, I like to dissect girls. Yeah. And then, you know, at the dry cleaner, he's, like, saying awful things to the woman who works at the dry cleaner. But every, And then when he says the murders and executions... Every time he does this, the person he's talking to isn't making eye contact with him, isn't looking at him. So it's like, is any of this really happening or are we just watching his thoughts play out? But then what is he... I, I, I honestly... Like, well, I don't yeah. know. I, but they yeah. give you that. Like, is, yeah. it, is he saying these things? Is he thinking these things? Yeah. Is it that people are just flat out... I mean, they don't even listen to your name. Why yeah. would they listen to everything else that's going on? I think like it's this only... idea that nobody is actually listening to anybody yeah like the only quote-unquote truth that we get in this movie is the voiceover narration from patrick himself and i does he at any point in the narration talk about killing people or is it just like his thoughts and him wanting to do that and trying to stave off this emptiness does he ever actually like there was there was scenes where he did but i can't be clear now i almost want to go back and watch it again because this this whole movie like i you know, we'll we'll obviously get to the ending, but I kind of left it this time thinking that none of that actually happened. I was kind of on the fence before we watched it, like based on the last time I watched it, but I, I'm kind of convinced that none of that happened, but I don't know. And then, like you said, there's, you know, he's doing all this crazy shit and nobody is reacting and nobody seems to notice. And there's that one just like crazy scene toward the end where he's literally chasing a woman naked covered in blood with a chainsaw through an apartment building and nobody, nobody comes out like <laughs> and then he kills her at the bottom of the stairs by dropping the chainsaw through several flights of stairs nobody comes out nobody hears it how did he get rid of that body like it's really confusing and jarring 
Well, and that's like he wasn't even getting rid of bodies, you know. Yeah, they're just like the stuffed into his closets and his freezer, yeah. and they're all over. It's like crazy. at the end, he just starts killing everybody. Yeah, like, and even yeah. though you see, I think you see up to um, maybe five people that he actually kills. Um, there's a point where he's like running through, and then well, actually, it's the the that sex worker, the blonde one, that's running through, and she's opening doors, and all of a sudden, there's like bodies in the bathtub there's bodies in the closet there's bodies in bags there's bodies here there's bodies all over the fucking place yeah and that you you and you didn't know were there and that's that's really when it starts like at that point it's almost unhinged yeah but at that point you're like holy fuck like how many people has he been killing and then this is what you're seeing like how long has this been you know going on so you mentioned the sex worker do you want to talk about those those that whole like Set up. I I feel like this movie. I don't even know where to start with that scene, but it it definitely touches on themes of misogyny quite a bit. And I know this was a criticism that the novel got that it was just like disgustingly sexist and homophobic and brutal without having the self awareness that I feel that the movie has. So I, I haven't read the book. I can't really say oh, for really? myself. Okay. Um, but that was a major critique of the book, and that's something that the director and the screenwriter of this movie wanted to kind of have their own take on and clarify. Like, they wanted it to be impossible to read this as anything but a satire and a critique on these things. Hmm. Okay. So I don't, I'm don't, i not sure how the book plays out, but I, I know there is a lot of criticism on it. Um, but there is the scene where he picks up the two sex workers, and he's telling them, you know, you're going to go by this name. And um, he basically spends the entire night, like making them do all kinds of ridiculous things and like watching himself in the mirror as he videos tapes himself taking turns with these two women. And I don't know what he ended up doing to them, but at the end of the night, it's really disturbing. Like they're, they're getting up to leave and he like opens up a drawer in his bedroom and there's all these tools in the drawer, like scalpels and scissors and and hangers and, and they leave and like he goes to pick up one of the sex workers again later on and she's like I had to go to the hospital last time I left and I might need surgery and I'm like holy shit what did he do well to after like, leaving both of them like their their noses are all bloody and they're scratched up yeah. and they're both like walking like they're fucked up so and you have I, I I've seen this movie many times now and that's one of those things like I still don't know exactly what he did to them yeah I didn't really want to know. Yeah, for sure. But then it's just, you also get that idea that he's not just killing people. He's just flat out torturing them too. Yeah. And especially women. And he comments on that several times. Like I like to dissect girls and bring me a blonde. And like from this point forward, we see him just killing women. And he mentions on the phone to the lawyer when he's making his crazed confession, like it's mostly women that he's killed. And one thing that actually stuck out to me was um, the scene where he's chasing the woman with the chainsaw. And he drops the uh, chainsaw on her. That shot of where it's like straight down the stairwell and you can see the stairs spiraled around her and she's just laying sprawled out on the floor with the chainsaw sticking out of her. I, no joke, have seen so many advertisements in like high-end magazines that depict horrific violence against women. And it'll be like an advertisement for a watch or a car or like I'll have to show you some of them. It's going to blow your mind. Really? Yeah, it's going to blow your mind. Wow. But it, it, like, immediately I started flashing some of those images of ads I've seen that come out of this type of consumerist high-end culture. So, you know, obviously there's a there's a bunch of deaths, and then at the end of the movie, basically, you know, everything's gone unhinged. Like, he's doing shit basically openly. Like you said, there's a really... It's a fucked up scene, but it's also kind of funny because here you have this guy that is flat out 
butt naked, wearing nothing but super white tennis shoes, and he's super buff, and he's covered in blood, chasing someone down the hallway with a chainsaw. Yeah. And... If you can just look at that just for a second, <laughs> with all the other commentary going on, it's a funny, it's funny as shit. Yeah, you know, it's um, just so absurd. It's completely yeah. absurd. <laughs> and then again, like this woman screaming, she's pounding on doors yeah. as she's going through. Nobody ever makes a sound. Um, and then eventually, he's like running the streets, and he's just shooting people left and right, killing them. And there's even the funny scene, like like it's funny and you know fucked up set where. <laughs> He's like walks down into an apartment um, building. He shoots the guy, like the Mater D or whatever, that's sitting there, <laughs> and then he starts going out, and it's like super late at night, so there's nobody there. Yeah. And he starts walking out the other side of the building. It's got one of those revolving doors, and as he's walking throughout the building through that revolving door, like the janitor comes out the uh, elevator, <laughs> and he just does like a loop de loop, a U turn through the uh, revolving door, shoots the janitor, and then revolves back out the <laughs> door. He's like, oh out. shit, I gotta get this guy too, you know. The whole last like ten to twenty minutes was just bonkers. I don't even know how I feel about it. It was so crazy and confusing and there's like explosions and he tries to stick a kitten in an ATM machine and shooting everybody he comes into contact with and there's helicopters and searchlights and it's just so bizarre. How it finally unfolds is him feeling like the gig is up, you know, and it's he's gonna get inevitably caught and he calls up his lawyer. He runs into his work office, calls his lawyer and is crying. And it's really the only time you actually see any emotion out of him. And he starts giving this confession to his lawyer about all the people that he's killed. And that's yeah. where he's like, I don't, like you said, like I, I don't know how many I killed, 20, 30, 40. Um, and then he's like, I guess I'm a pretty sick guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you think that something's going to go down. And the next day he... Gets up, goes to reservation for his friends, and he's all sweaty and everything, and he's, like, trying to figure out what the fuck's going on. And he sees his lawyer over there having lunch with somebody, and he goes up and starts talking to him. And the lawyer doesn't even know who he is. It's called him by a different name to begin with, uh, like we get everywhere else. So he starts right. talking to this guy, and then Patrick's like, did you get my message? And he's just like, oh, yeah. And he thought <laughs> Patrick Bateman was this other guy pretending to be Patrick Bateman doing all these things. Or, you know, making this voicemail call and uh, this confession. And then Patrick's, like, snapping. Like, I did it. That's me. I killed those people. I killed Paul Allen. And, again, he repeatedly has to, like, just keep on bringing up Paul Allen because he's really the only person that is of any, quote-unquote, societal importance that anybody is going to take him seriously for killing. Even though he confesses the other murders. And the guy refuses to believe him and in fact says that he had lunch with Paul Allen in England or in London not too long ago. So that's one of the, that's another one of those things where you're like, is it real or not? Because you get this often. There's also another point where someone does that. And essentially it kind of ends on that note, except for Patrick, like you said, there's that wonderful not wonderful, it's, you know, dark, but it's it's wonderful and, you know, what it brings to the party and ties it all up that after everything has happened, that you just watched all these horrific events and the unfolding and the insanity and the slipping of the mask, you it ends with Patrick Bateman essentially telling you that this 
confession has meant nothing. And that's how the movie ends. Yeah, that's the very end of the movie. And it's it's really ambiguous. And I, I actually looked on um, online for different interpretations because I was left kind of confused by the ending and I wanted to see what other people got out of it. And it was actually, I think it was on IMDb, on the trivia section, it said there were basically originally like two takeaways that you should get from this movie or that you could take from this movie. And the first one is that Patrick did kill all these people and the lawyer mistook Paul Allen and him for someone else. And it's basically just a like a sick joke because like, yes, he did do all these things, but nothing's going to happen because nobody knows who he is anyway. Nobody cares. And then the second possibility is that it was all in his head. And at one point, like when his secretary goes in his office and opens up his notebook, he sees she sees all these like horrific drawings of all the murders that we see take place or that we hear about on screen. And the second interpretation is like none of those things actually happen, but we as an audience are kind of seeing like his fantasies play out in his head and they didn't really happen. So I kind of left like leaning more towards the second one. Where, okay. where it didn't happen because the first one like maybe he did do all these things and the lawyer mistook him for somebody else but it doesn't explain like him running around and shooting all these people and he shoots with a regular gun at a cop car and the car explodes like in an 80s action movie he tries to stick a kitten in an atm machine where the text shows up and says please feed me a straight cat like all this just bananas shit is happening and there are people around to witness it but nobody actually reacts to it or does anything so that was just confusing to me like I I left thinking that none of this actually happened and that it was like a metaphor for this empty consumerist culture or like a a satire perspective on that yeah I mean those are basically the two interpretations and there's as far as I know there's no right answer I I, as many times I've watched this they I feel like they have done a superb job and leaving that open yeah and it's kind of it reminds me of which we'll get down this road at another point you know but it reminds me with the whole blade runner controversy oh. is is decker a replica or not because depending on what you're looking what your view is you know what your bias is you will find supporting evidence absolutely 100 percent you, you will find how... supporting. I know we'll get down that road. We're not going to go there right now. We're not going to go down that road right now. But I feel like this movie does the same thing. Yeah. And it does it in a very, very particular, um, well orchestrated manner. Yeah. And the only evidence that we have that anything has actually taken place by you know evidence, I mean, be, by outside people reacting to something is the private detective looking for Paul Allen. That is the only person that is any that anybody is interested in. And one of the things with that is that even though Paul Allen is has been quote unquote seen, maybe not seen, maybe had breakfast or lunch with somebody, um, there is the fact that people are constantly confusing each other for everybody else. Yeah. So there's you really cannot take that as evidence that Paul Allen is alive and somewhere else. Two, he did mysteriously get up and disappear. Because there is this private investigator looking for him. That's true. And three, which was unlike, which was not, that's why they hired a private investigator. Because there were things going on in his life where that just didn't make any sense for him to do. And three is the fact that there's a point where Patrick Bateman has been using Paul Allen's apartment basically for a murder hotel. (laughs) Right. And after everything is said and done, he eventually goes back there 
for what reason we don't know it appears that he's going back to try to cover up some of the evidence yeah because he thinks things like well the lawyer didn't even fucking believe me maybe i can get away with this yeah and there is people in there the whole house is painted over everything in the or the apartment is gone cleaned out and there is somebody there showing off the apartment yeah and when the when he inquires about the previous residence and if this paul allen's place the woman there actually gets like angry with him yeah, and I mean, she has no idea who he is or what he's doing there or how he knows about that place or. But who I Paul found that kind of interesting like... because when you're trying to sell a place, yeah, you know, it's not usually the type of thing like you were in my appointment, get the fuck out. Yeah, you know, oh, are you interested in this? It's obvious. It's obvious. He, he looks the part for someone that would buy this apartment, and she's reacting to him in kind of a weird way that kind of makes me suspicious that the apartment building hadn't gotten any money from Paul in, in a month. Went in there found the mess, cleaned it all up, and is ready to rent an apartment again. Yeah. And if you're in there inquiring about it, fuck off, you know? Yeah, interesting. Okay, so that kind of could support that maybe he did. Absolutely. But he killed... No. No, you're right. Oh, that's weird. So I, I, yeah. I think you can look at it through both lens. The yeah. other thing that I find the most bananas about this is, like you mentioned... Well, I mean, there's a lot of bananas, but as far when I say bananas, I mean the thing that you can look at and say... That doesn't add up um, any more than anything else did. Is the scene where he does shoot the cop car and it blows up. Yeah, what the fuck? <laughs> you know. Well, he's also taking some kind of medication that he starts chewing like candy toward the end. So is it like an antipsychotic? Is he schizophrenic? Like, is he suffering delusions? As again, and yeah. that's, what the, that's what they did extravagantly well in this, yeah. and I in think my the, opinion. And I think by the end, we just get the message like... It doesn't matter. And that's the whole thing. Yeah. And that's why and that's why I said at the beginning of this episode, whether he did all these things and he got away with it, or this is just what was going on in his head and was his view of the world at the time. Yeah. And we still, all these, despite the um, murders, we still saw really horrible aspects of society. Absolutely. And what it really comes down to is that whether I did these things or not, that that is how fucked up, forgive my uh, lack of eloquence here, that is, you know, how fucked up the society is that they are portraying, is that whether he did these things or not... He's still a horrible person. He's still a horrible person, and still nobody cares. And still a reflection... Nobody is held yeah. accountable. And still a reflection of just this shallow, misogynistic culture. Actually, one of my, I wouldn't say my favorite scenes, but a scene that I liked quite a bit when in terms of explaining or highlighting this critique, if you will. Yeah. Which you mentioned briefly was a scene where he is uh, at lunch with his friends and it is near the end of the movie. It's yeah. where it's right before he sees his lawyer and approaches him about the phone call that he made about the confession. And they are watching President Reagan go on and it's, uh, this is, you know, actual archival footage yeah, of the president basically telling the American people that this is this was during the whole Iran-Contra affair. Yeah. And if you don't know anything about this, you're going to want to look that up. Yeah. It is absolutely bananas in American history. Yeah. And, you know, I'm not a, a historian by any means, uh, any stretch of the imagination. Uh, I'm an engineer. I don't go down that line. But, so, you know, I'm going to say a few things about it. I'm sure that they're not all historically accurate or it's not 100% correct. But you get the flavor, okay? Yeah. Essentially, you had a president that was setting up illegal uh, militias 
and other countries selling arms illegally to fund his own wars, selling drugs to fund illegal wars that Congress explicitly over and over and over again would catch him doing, fault him for it, he would say, oops, sorry, find some other kind of sort of loophole and just keep on doing it. He was caught in lie after lie where he would just deadpan face, not even deadpan face, you know, old grandpa fucking, you know, Hollywood actor style smiling, you know, to the American people, lie to their face about his involvement. And one of the friends at this point is watching him do this. And it's kind of this like takes one to know one type of thing Yeah, where he's like, how can he do that? How can he just look the American public in the eye, knowing full well that he's full of shit, and fund these fucking wars? Yeah. And he's actually angry about it. Yeah. And it's, again, one of the only times you see anybody showing any kind of bit of real emotion or real thought. Yeah. And I feel like it really highlighted it. Because here you are at the highest level, essentially, you know, in the same era, you have the same thing going on where no matter what and when he you know you hear it over and over again people were throwing evidence out there it's over and over again and iron contra is one of those things where there's evidence that says it's this way and almost all the evidence points in that direction mm -hmm. but well if you want to you can interpret it and you can say you know that didn't actually happen that way and things happen this way and blah blah you can interpret it any fucking way you want but what yeah. it comes down to is no matter what the fuck happened and who saw what nobody was held accountable yeah nobody gave a shit Nobody gave a shit what was going on. And that was just, I mean, there's example after example of that throughout yeah. that movie and throughout the 80s, obviously. But that was a real world example of what was going on at that time. Yeah. Outside of this make-believe, you know, story that we're involved in. And it's right at the point where Patrick Bateman is literally begging his lawyer to believe him that he's been murdering women and his co-worker. Yeah, and he's like, and I have all this evidence, I have all this proof, and then his lawyer's just like... Yeah, very Angry funny. Him, yeah. yeah. And it's, like you said, it's still so relevant now in so many ways, and it still translates so well now. And if I could go back to that article, I, I highlighted another quote just to kind of wrap up what we were talking about. You know, even now, 20 years later, it says, American Psycho hasn't left the culture because the culture hasn't left American Psycho. The only difference is that Bateman seems more electable now than he might have been then. Ooh. Yeah, so I'm like, oh, shit. You know, goes on to say, not that he'd be interested in politics. When he goes off on an enlightened disquisition to his Wall Street buddies on apartheid, the nuclear arms race, the fight against world hunger, equal rights for women, and the return of traditional values, Bateman echoes whatever popular sentiments he's pulled from the ether. Absolutely. Yeah. That reminded me, that was what I was going to touch upon with the, his music choices. Yeah. Because every one of his, the things that he's the most passionate about is really just comes down to whatever is the absolute most popular at the time. Yeah. And even though he tries to invoke all these different feelings that can be um, established behind them yeah. or what he can connect to, it, it really just is this, and he says it over and over again, you know, secret, or not secretly, but to us, that yeah. he is doing whatever he possibly can to fit in. I, I think I every wrote a note Every aspect on that. about his life yeah. is nothing I jotted, trying to fit. I jotted down a little note on that where, where um, he's talking about all the different musics he listens to. And just like, it's almost a reflection of what he wants to want, but doesn't want. It's, I feel like it's because he's seeing this mm -hmm. as massively popular, mm -hmm. right? So, you know, if 
half of America is listening to this, this is what America is like. And there's nothing more to it than that. Like, yeah. he, he doesn't, he can't pick up on it in any other realm other than the fact that it is quote-unquote popular. Yeah, so well said. And I feel like that, that last line in the article just kind of ties it together really well of what we were getting at. And um, I feel like that last line the, of the movie, too, it just... Yeah, this confession has meant nothing. Yeah, And I feel like that holds true more than ever. You know, you can have over and over again individuals or truth come to light that no matter... And, and again, the, with this movie, like, how fucking bananas it is. Yeah. But I'm sure we can all think of things off the top of our head of historical incidents. And it doesn't necessarily have to be political, you know, by any means. It could be any number of things. But where you've seen just absolutely... Like, recently we watched uh, Wild Wild Country. Yeah. So we won't go oh too into goodness. that, you know. Yeah. But where there are things that... And, you know, fact is stranger than fiction. And it is. And you can have these situations over and over again where it is absolutely fucking bananas... And literally nothing happens from it. Or if something does happen, it's so trivial and small and inconsequential that it's a joke. Yeah. And, you know, I feel like that is just nailed it. Like, they just took a pie slice of that decade. Yeah. But it really is just encapsulating, you know, like this article is saying that, you know, 20 years later, it's really just the same, same story in a different decade. For sure. Okay, so if it's not obvious from our discussion about it, we definitely seem to like this movie. And I've thought a lot about my rating for it. You know, we rate on a scale of 1 to 12 beers, and I know I gave both Stir of Echoes and The Fly a 12 out of 12 beers. And for this one, the, the only thing that didn't totally hit it for me was just, I guess, the way that the last 10 to 20 minutes played out. Like, the very, very end, the last line, I thought that was really well done, but the whole you know, police car exploding and all the chaos and trying to put the kitten in the ATM machine. Like that was just almost too convoluted for me. And there were a couple scenes that were hard to watch, but ultimately I think this is a very good movie. It holds up really well. It's still relevant today. And I ultimately decided to give it 10 and a half out of 12 beers. Nice. How about you? What would you rate American Psycho? So no joke, exactly the same. 10 and a half? 10 and a half, exactly. What? Going it's between 10 and a half and 11, but nice. I couldn't, I couldn't bring myself to go up to that 11th one, and I couldn't really pinpoint why, and it was kind of the same reasons, especially yeah. with, there's just some of what happens in that last, yeah. you know, 20 minutes. It where could have been just a little tighter. It could, and I feel like for what they were going for, yeah, of that whole, did it happen, did it not happen thing, like, they still could have had him, honestly, running through the streets, shooting some people, I think the scene where he, like, shot the people inside the building would have been believable. Sure. Because it's at night, there's the only night, people there. Yeah. Um, but the the one that really did it was the blowing up the cop car thing. Yeah, I was like, and okay, what is happening? Shooting out the cops. You, like, yeah. kill some police officers. And, and maybe that just goes to emphasize the lack of shits that people yeah. give. But there was something about that that you almost felt like they were trying to... You know, they, they finish, like, that portion of the movie, and then they're like, oh, fuck, there's still a lot we need to put into this thing. Yeah. Let's ram it in there. They could have still made the same point without adding all that in there. So Absolutely. I, I feel like that was just a little a little excessive. Yeah, yeah. so I'm I'm on the exact same boat, you cool. know, I was going so with. So 10 and a half out of 12. Solid movie. Absolutely. Definitely worth a watch, especially, you know, to celebrate the 20th anniversary. For sure. It's It's great. So what kind of beer would you pair this movie with? So, and this is going to seem a little on the nose, but there's some reasons behind it other okay. than the fact that, or besides the fact that 
Patrick Bateman throughout this movie is constantly requesting a blonde. <laughs> a blonde woman. That blonde is, woman. Yeah. And uh, I think this movie would pair beautifully with a blonde ale. <laughs> <laughs> One, you get your blonde. Two... Uh, I, I can't help but read this thing. I, I got this little snippet on it, and I was literally just kind of, like, looking up different beers and everything. And yeah. this was their exact wording, which was just absolutely on the point to the whole, like, ambiance of this movie. And it says that uh, Blondale is a easy-drinking beer that is visually appealing and has no particular dominating malt or hop characteristics and is known for its simplicity, essentially. So it's a beer that looks good, but really doesn't taste like shit. <laughs> You know, and it doesn't have high alcohol content in it, so yeah. it doesn't get you drunk. It doesn't really taste like anything. Or if it does, it doesn't really do anything outwardly offensive yeah. as you would get in the in these part now in the seedier parts obviously they do things, but in their high life and society out in the open and the public dresses. Yeah. Um everybody is just basically putting on a complete front. They are uh, absolutely empty, hollow, meaningless. And they have no distinguishing characteristics, and that's why nobody can remember each other's names. Yeah, I feel like that description is like a perfect, almost paraphrasing of what we're talking about for the themes of this movie. So it's not, we're not like literally talking about blondes, we're talking about just the the tropes and the themes that we're talking about in this movie. Yeah, we're not saying anything about blondes, but it's almost like the, uh, it encompasses like the American ideals of beauty and what we should like and what we should want. But also they... They are delicious. They are. There are some good ones They're out there. Crisp, they're crisp. And right? I was actually going to give a recommendation to anybody that is looking for a blonde, personally, because I've never been... I know you're more into them than I am. One That's of the best true. blondes. <laughs> <laughs> blonde ales. But I've ever had was by a brewery called Artifacts. Oh, that's a good one. That is, I think they are in um, San Clemente, actually. So they're, you know, fairly local to us. And it's just called, like, the Artifacts. And it's like... Already, it's like you know, small hipster style, so it's artifacts with oh, an yeah. X in there and everything. F-E-X. But yeah, yeah, it is fucking good. Yeah, it is a delicious summer beer. Mission has a great blonde ale too. Do they? The Mission Brewing Company. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah it's really good. Cool. All right, that was my pick. I think it was a good pick. I certainly enjoyed the hell out of myself. For sure. Me I too. I hope you guys all did too. Alicia, what are we watching this week? So I was really. I mean, we always say this, but I was really torn between two movies for our next episode, and so much so that I ended up having to flip a coin to decide between the two, and the coin has spoken. So next episode, we are covering the 2013 remake of Evil Dead. Oh, shit. All right. I'm ready. And just for yeah. the record, I have not seen the original Evil Dead either. You I watched started it to, with my brother and I, I fell like, asleep. You fell asleep. <laughs> a couple months ago, you fell yeah. asleep. But All right. So Evil Dead it is. We are doing the 2013 Evil Dead remake. Um, unfortunately, I checked it's not streaming for free anywhere, but you can rent it for like $2.99. And I, I haven't watched the unrated version yet. That's the one that we are going to watch. Okay. <laughs> I saw it in theaters when it came out. I haven't watched it since, but it has stuck with me ever since. And right before we go, I just wanted to share with all you guys, we got a voicemail from my friend Nicole. So we're going to go ahead and play that for you. Hey, Alicia. Hey, Greg. Just listened to episode four. It's Nicole again. Uh, you guys, I love your flow. And you know what I loved about this episode is, you know, despite me not being a horror fan, I feel like I could really relate to the beginning where you guys were talking about the monsters. I almost knew every single one of them. 
Um, so I guess I like some horror, but <laughs> I mean, Jurassic Park, like you said, was in horror. Um, but, um, I did end up seeing Pan's Labyrinth by accident. Um, I was at the movie theater, had not seen commercials for it with my high school boyfriend. And we're like, Hey, look, that looks like a good movie, like a fantasy movie just from the, um, movie poster. And we saw there was a little girl on the movie poster. So we're like, sure, this could be like a kid you know, um, Narnia kind of movie. (laughs) So we went and watched that. And I agree that, um, that creature is creepy and, um, I don't have an idea to add to your creature list. Um, but I do want to say when you guys were talking about, um, your neighbor playing music and the soundtrack in the background, another cool element from Pan's Labyrinth, that was um kind of stuck with me was the horror is the soundtrack I don't know if you guys are ever gonna ask us about that but I will reflect on it uh I just think that lullaby in that movie is just this kind of eerie but touching so anyways stay spooky I look forward to trying that beer probably won't watch the movie the fly thanks for um talking about it (laughs) all right miss you guys bye thank you so much for that voicemail Nicole I I honestly didn't even know until last week that we could get voice messages on Anchor which is so awesome awesome awesome. and we can just put them into the episode but i know thank you so much i it's so awesome to hear that our conversations are reaching people who aren't even horror fans and that there are people who aren't into horror who are like affected by these movies and touched by these movies and it seems like pan's labyrinth is we all had the same experience with pan's labyrinth where we had no idea what we were getting into (laughs) (laughs) nobody was ready nobody was prepared and that was also my one of my favorite things about that movie was the soundtrack so Thank you, Nicole, for bringing that up and and calling in. We love getting listener mail. Yeah, that's a great point. I, yeah. I'm sure we'll do that movie at some point as oh, well on sure. its own. Yeah, but just touching on that, I, I also love that lullaby. It's haunting and beautiful at the same time. Yeah. So as always, you are all welcome to email us uh, with movie suggestions or beer suggestions. And you can reach us at blood fear and beer at gmail.com and just to keep with the the weekly theme of our episodes if there are any movies that stood out to you as having really good social commentary we'd love to hear about that as well especially if it was uh kind of like what we had so if it was one that you weren't expecting anything like that but you got some good commentary at it or out of it or if it was a movie that you have seen and you know upon you're you know rewatching it over the years you've gotten more out of it as you've grown definitely we want to hear from you and you can also follow us on instagram at blood fear and beer podcast and until next time stay spooky stay spooky guys see ya